Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. Just like to look around and see who's actually here. You're not just a crowd of people, you're people that I know. It's good to see who's here. Uh, if you want to open your Bible to the book of Ephesians, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning like we did last week. This letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus, a church that he had spent three years ministering to, teaching them the gospel. And to review from last time, we talked about how God is authoring a story, that the story is a cosmic story, that there are uh, heavenly places, not just the earth that we inhabit, and there is a heavenly concept of time that goes beyond just the time that you and I occupy, but that goes from before the foundation of the world, and that there are actors not just here on earth, but actors in the heavenly places, principalities and powers and authorities and dominions that are all part of this story, this cosmic story that God is telling. And we talked briefly about our need, and indeed really our responsibility, that we need to submit ourselves to the author of the story, because what happens is when we make ourselves the author, when we take the pen from the author's hand and start writing the story for ourselves, we tend to make the story about us. And when we do that, we end up getting angry, disappointed when things don't go according to our story. And so we need to put down that pen and we need to submit ourselves to the, the author and discern what is his story? What's his plan? What's my role in that? And how do I play that role well? What we're going to talk about today, what we're going to look more deeply at is what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 as the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And how through Paul's preaching, God would bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. There's a mystery that Paul talks about. This mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been, made, now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, Ephesians 3, 5. So we're going to look at what this mystery is this morning, and know it's not simply that Christ was revealed, that the Messiah came. The mystery is deeper than that. And Paul goes to great lengths to unfold it. And for us to understand it better, I think it's going to be helpful for us to actually trace back and go, well, who are God's chosen people? Where did they come from? Okay, and so... We've got, uh, Tamara, go ahead and go to the first slide there. So we're going to trace the genealogy of God's chosen people. This will show up here shortly, we hope. We've had technical difficulties earlier. There we go. Okay, so we've got Adam, Adam and Eve. It starts with them, right? And of course, Adam had descendants, and one of those descendants was Noah, right? Then, of course, there, there was the flood, and we know that there was Noah and his three sons, and each of them had a wife, so there's eight and the family tree really has to start over again because there's nobody else left. And at one branch of the tree, we find Abraham, right? And this is where things start to get interesting because God made a promise to Abraham that his offspring would be as the stars in the heavens. And yet he and his wife, Sarah, could not have, and so did not have any children, even though they were late 90, in their 90s. And so Sarah took matters into her own hands and gave her handmaiden, Hagar, to Abraham to have children. So that happened. And Hagar had Ishmael. But Ishmael is not the promised offspring God was talking about. God meant through Abraham and Sarah that 
there would be these descendants that outnumber the stars. And then later, God gives Abraham and Sarah a son, Isaac. And Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob, and Jacob is called Israel. Then Israel, the bloodline continues from Adam to Jacob and down through his 12 sons who make up the 12 tribes. <laughs> yeah, you saw that, didn't you? Some of you are fans, I, I get it, right? No, that's not the official flag of the 12 tribes of Israel. But these are God's chosen people, okay? And meanwhile, of course, other branches of the tree continue to spread. The other people who are not God's chosen people continue to have children, and so the branches spread. And of all the people on the earth today, 0.2% of them are Jews. So I think the next one, there it is. Okay. And the next slide, who's the rest? Those are the Gentiles. Okay, and so what this means is that God made his relationship different with Israel than his relationship with the Gentiles. Now, why is it different? Why, what's different about the relationship between Israel and the Gentiles? Well, there's several things, not the least of which is that, that he set his heart, his affection on them. He gave them promises. He made covenants with them. He supplied the law and ordinances for how they're supposed to interact with him. He didn't provide that for the Gentiles, for anybody else. It was only his chosen people. And in Exodus 19.5, we see, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. Leviticus 26.12, I will be your God and you will be my people. Deuteronomy 14.2, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 26, 18 through 19. The Lord has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession. He has promised you and that you should keep all his commandments and that he will set you high above the nations which he has made for praise, fame, and honor. And that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as he has spoken. So he sets his affections on the people of Israel, particularly on this nation. But he also gives them the Ten Commandments and ordinances for how they're supposed to worship. And so he gave them instructions for how to worship in the tabernacle, which was kind of the mobile house of God. It was the temporary place of worship as the Israelites wandered around until they settled. And then once they settled, they then had the temple, but it, which, which was really synonymous with the tabernacle. And inside of it, there were these different levels. And if you were here a few weeks ago, Chris Meyer talked at length about how there were these different, um, different gates uh, and um, barriers that kind of increased, in, um, increased as you got closer to the Holy of Holies, which is where God's presence dwelled. Okay? And in... Uh, in the temple in Jerusalem, there were uh, several temples that the kings would build and then they'd get destroyed when the enemies would come and wipe them out. Uh, but the last one that stood in Jesus' day was the one that Herod built. Now, it was destroyed in AD uh, 70, and, but during Jesus' time, it was still there. But this next slide here is a model that's, I think this is in Jerusalem, of the temple as King Herod had constructed it. And as we zoom in and get a little bit closer, 
you can see, so there's that taller structure there in the back, the taller one. Inside of that, at the back of it, was the Holy of Holies. And then in front of that, but still inside that same structure, was the holy place. And then outside of that structure, but inside that fenced wall, that was where the court of the priests were. And then on the outside was the court of the Israelites, where the men of Israel could be. And then you've got that wall in the front, that front area, that was the court of women. So that's where the women could go. But then when you go down the steps, there's that little wall around the outside of the bottom of the stairs. Outside of that wall was the court of the Gentiles. So inside these walls, this was the only place where God could be properly worshipped. This is the place where Jews could offer worship as God prescribed it. And since his presence was here, this is where you came to draw near to God. And only the Jews were allowed inside. That small wall around the bottom, see that tiny wall, it was about five feet high. And then there were, they say, it varies, but maybe 14 steps. And so imagine that you're at the bottom, right? I mean, it's here, there's a wall five feet tall here, and then there's 14 stairs, and then there's this giant wall. And you're a Gentile and you're looking and you don't see what's going on in there. Whatever worship is happening, you're not participating. You're not a part of it. You're not allowed to be a part of it. In fact, on this wall, uh, inscribed into this wall, was called the middle wall of partition, there were signs uh, that were inscribed in there. And archaeologists about uh, in the mid-1800s found one of those signs. And this is it. Right, this was inscribed into the wall, and it was, these signs were all throughout the wall, and they were in different languages, because there would be different, a Gentile was anybody from any nation that wasn't Jewish, and so they spoke different languages. So these signs were put there, and these are what those signs said. This one here translates to this. No foreigner is to enter within the balustrade and embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which follows, which is a lot like that sign on the front of your bulletin. Really, this is, sorry, holy property, no trespassing, violators will be prosecuted, and prosecution is death, okay? And so you're a Gentile, and there were God-fearing Gentiles at the time who would come and they wanted to worship the God of Israel, but they couldn't. This is as close as they could get. They could get no closer. They were not a part of worship. They were not a part of God's people. They were excluded. Not only that, the Jews looked down on them. See, the, the Gentiles were uh, unclean. If they came into the temple, they would defile the temple. So, I mean, you can see how this goes. The Israelites go, well, we're chosen and you're not. You're unclean, we're clean. So it doesn't take very long for you to get a superiority complex about other people around you. And one of the things that the Israelites were given was a covenant with God through Moses of circumcision. And that was the mark that Okay, I'm an Israel and you're an Israelite and you're not. And what the Jews would call those who were not Jews were the uncircumcision in a derogatory way. It was a, it was a, a name like in World War II and after, um, a lot of people would call the Japanese Japs or the Germans Krauts or all kinds of racial slurs that we hear today and that still happen. It was the same kind of a thing. Now, it's no secret that racial tension is a thing in our country right now. Um, I mean, I was just reading uh, last night, there's, I don't know, Trump said something about Steph Curry and everybody else said something about Trump and it just, the race stuff is, it's getting to be a deal, right? 
And it's been a long part of our country's sad history, a sad part of it. I mean, when, when immigrants were coming here through Ellis Island back in the early 1900s, white people didn't like white people. The Italians didn't like the Irish. And the Scandinavians didn't like the Polish. Nobody really liked the Jews and the Hispanics. Right? Racial stuff has been happening for a long time in our country and around the world. It's not limited to just here. Because our personal ethnic heritage can be used as a false uh, lever for making ourselves feel superior to other people. Did you know that in 1924, in Stanwood, over 1,000 people came out to support the Ku Klux Klan? And what started as a rally here, when was the last time 1,000 people gathered in Stanwood? <laughs> really, I mean, it, this was a big deal. And what happened is that they, they it was people from here, um, Mount Vernon, Bellingham, some from Everett. And what started here grew into a movement that moved north through Skagit County up into Bellingham. And there was a rally there a few months later that they estimate between 12 and 25,000 people came out for a rally in support of the KKK. And so this, we think it's something that maybe happens out there. I think if we're honest, we know that it doesn't. I grew up in Arlington and racial slurs were part of the normal language. It was awful. I partook of it. It was, to my shame, it was awful. And that was not that many years ago. It simply wasn't. And I can't, I can't believe that it's just simply gone, that it's been eradicated, that we're now enlightened people and we have no issues with race in our hearts. It's just not how we work because we're always looking for a lever to climb up. We're always looking for something to make us feel better. And it's not just America. The Tutsis and the Hutus in Rwanda, I mean, genocide, hundreds of thousands of people killed because of their race. The Japanese tried to exterminate the Chinese before World War II. We've got the Iraqis and the Kurds. Just as early as 2003, pygmies were being hunted down and eaten by their enemies in their own country in the Congo because those people wanted to wipe the slate clean. Race is a problem. It really is. The world has a race problem and Israel had a race problem. Now it could be that you're asking now, as I did as I was thinking about this, that isn't this kind of God's fault? I mean, he, he picked a chosen people, which means he didn't pick somebody else. Aren't they gonna get jealous? I mean, isn't this how this is gonna go? Didn't you see this coming? Well, first of all, we need to know that God knows all outcomes. He knew what was going to happen. Second of all, we can never blame God for any, doing anything wrong because God doesn't do anything wrong. Whatever he does is right. But we have to remember that we are a fallen people and we are full of sin. And when bad things happen, it's because sinful people did them. Listen to God's heart in the Old Testament regarding sojourners. A sojourner was a person who was a foreigner who was living in a land that was not their own. So for the Jews, it would be non-Jews living among the Jewish people. Deuteronomy 10, 14 through 19, it says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart 
and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. This is what he said to the Israelites. Then he says this, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. I don't think we can make a case that God goes, no, racism is okay. Because even though he has a chosen people, he loves both of them, and he commands his people to love them. In the same breath that he declares love for one, he declares love for another. And the fact that they disobeyed or didn't do this has more to do with their sinfulness than it has anything to do with God. But what does this have to do with the book of Ephesians? That's where we're at, right? Now remember, we're looking at this mystery that Paul's talking about. There's this Paul that, this mystery that Paul says is hidden for all ages in God, and this mystery was not revealed until Paul was given a revelation of it as to what it was. Now we're going to read a passage from Ephesians, starting in chapter 2. So if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read starting in verse 11. And there's two things I want you to pay attention to as we read through this. The first one is... Remember that wall of separation in the temple between the Gentiles and the Jews, that wall that was around the temple. Remember that because it shows up in this passage. And remember also the temple and how this was the place where real worship happened. This is where God's presence was. This is where, this is where it was at, right? And anything outside of that was not, didn't count, okay? So we read in Ephesians 2, beginning verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, there's that, that poke at them, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Pay attention to the temple language here. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The dividing wall of hostility is gone. Not because Christ went in and got a sledgehammer and started knocking it down so they could go into the Holy of Holies. Because the temple doesn't matter anymore. Because he's making a new temple. A temple that's made up of those who he's gathered who are his people and who he puts his spirit in. And so now he dwells in his people. In the beginning of the book, Paul alludes to this mystery of God's eternal plan in these really general terms 
or just more general terms, it says that his purpose is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is God's master plan. He wants to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And then Paul gets really plain and specific in Ephesians 3, verse 6. He says, the mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There should be lots of AMs because you're all amens because you're all Gentiles. We tend to think that we're in that chosen people. We're not. I mean, except for we've got one back here. A couple. The Klein boys are here. Right? There are, there are some who are Jewish, but listen, that chart, none of you were in the yellow sliver. Okay, we, we were all kept outside of that dividing wall of hostility. We could not have partaken in the promises of God. But what does he do? He says, listen, I had a, I had a plan. See, selecting a chosen people was a setup. For I don't know how many years, he did all this work through Israel. All this special covenant chosen work through Israel. Promises, all this stuff. Pursued them, even though they were just atrocious. I mean, he would deliver them from the Red Sea, and then they're grumbling a few weeks later that, oh, we want to go back to Egypt. I mean, over and over and over again, he pursues them. Because he's, he's got this covenant with them. And all of history and time is about these people, it seems. But the plan that we see unfolding in Ephesians is that, no, God's chosen people isn't just them. He's got a plan for the Gentiles as well. A plan that is equal in his love, equal in his commitment. I, I just, I was blown away. I mean, I, I think about this and I've always gone, yeah, okay, I'm a, I'm a Gentile and now I'm included. But to think of it as this part of God's cosmic plan. So why does God do this? Why does he spend all this time working in just Israel and not the Gentiles. Well, we see chapter 3, verse 10 says he does all of this so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Remember last week we talked about he's showing off. Those principalities and powers, they're like, okay, he's, he's narrowed in, he's got his chosen people, so we're going to come against his chosen people. Right? And then he pulls the ace out of his sleeve and says, no, you missed it, my chosen people are much bigger than that by everything but the 0.2%. It's all of them. And so he did this to display his manifold wisdom. His manifold wisdom. That God's wiser than just this little box you want to push him in, but he's got wisdom that you don't even know about. And that's the mystery that's unfolding. He's pursuing Gentiles and Jews. And he also says that he does this that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in chapter 2, verse 7. And then this phrase is repeated throughout the book of Ephesians. He says that he does this in 1 verse 6. He says he does it to the praise of his glorious grace. And chapters 2 and 14 both say that he does it to the praise of his glory. Now what does this mean to the praise of his glory? What is glory? Well, we get a little help from Moses. In Exodus 33, Moses asks God, God, show me your glory. So when we hear that, we go, okay, what does it look like? I'm ready. God's going to show it. I want to know what it looks like. And God replies with this, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face 
for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And a few verses later, we see in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 5, we see that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving, sorry, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord God go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. The theme of God's glory, his essence, is his mercy. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will be gracious to who I have, will be gracious. It's the hallmark of who he is. He could have said, I will punish who I punish, but that's not how he identifies himself. I mean, look back at what it, say, what it says there. The God, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. There's two things we learn about, about God from this. It's, one is, so the apex of who he is, if, if God is multifaceted, he's got all these, he's got wrath, he's got justice, he's got love, he's got all these things. Mercy is the facet of the diamond that shines the brightest. And the second thing that this shows when he says, I will be gracious to who I will be gracious, that he is impartial in who he gives his mercy to. He has no partiality. It doesn't matter if you're a chosen race with special covenants and promises and ordinances for worship and you fall away and run away from God and run back to him a thousand times. He is merciful. It doesn't matter if you're not part of God's chosen people and you have no clue who he is and have never even thought of him. He's merciful and he pursues you. He will be merciful on whom he will be merciful. He is free, he is not bound by anyone or anything to give his mercy to anybody he wants to. He says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. The Gentiles were not my people. And then he says, no, now you're sons of the living God. God has mercy on Jews, he has mercy on Gentiles, whomever he wills, he has mercy upon. And he does that so that in this age, and the age, age to come, his glory will be praised because all of us who were destined for wrath received mercy and we were united as one body to be one temple in Christ to serve the one true God. Because the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. Now remember that the overarching story that this is a part of, that God is authoring, this mystery has now been revealed. It's not hidden anymore. And he's broken down enmity vertically between us and God, and he's broken down hostility between 
one another, right? Through the cross, he does both. And if this is his master story, then we have to ask, well, what's my role in this story? And last week I talked a little bit about how we play our part in that vertical story of reconciling men to God because in the heavenly places, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ so they can't receive the gospel because they don't see the gospel as beautiful because they're blinded by the God of this world. And so our role in reconciling them to God is to pray to God that in the heavenly places he would open their eyes and that we would be prepared with the gospel to proclaim that gospel so that when their eyes are open, they have the gospel and they see the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus in that gospel. And that's our role in the story vertically. But horizontally is what we want to talk about this morning. How does the cross and the gospel address the horizontal hostility that we have? Now the first thing that we need to say is this, and that's that the only lasting answer for peace between ethnic or social groups is the gospel. There, there really isn't another answer. The world tries to come up with, well, if we do diversity training, if we do uh, tolerance, you know, and if we do all these things, then the, these race problems will go away. The problem with racism or classism or any other ism isn't that we don't have enough education, it's that we have sin in our hearts. And the only thing that takes care of the sin of our hearts is the gospel. And so race will never be addressed until the gospel gets into a person's heart and displaces it. So we can, we can try if we want, but the world is gonna tell you this is what you need to do to solve the race problem. And we have to say, I mean, Paul just outlined it. The mystery is this. Race gets broken down in Christ. And here's how it happens. When you're at the cross, the message of the cross is you were so bad that somebody had to die. There's no boasting there. There's no, well, I was better than this person. Somebody had to die for you. And you're gonna talk about I'm all that. No, that's not what happens at the cross. It, puts a humility inside of us that allows us to be able to address race in a different way. Because we can now go and, and acknowledge, okay, in humility, I know I don't know everything. And so I'm going to be really careful when I see people saying that they're offended, that they have, you know, they're going to sit for the national anthem or whatever the stuff is, that's going on. I'm going to riot in the streets. I'm going to I'm going to be against police, whatever it is. We have to be really careful that we don't assume that we know what their experience is like. Humility says, I don't know them. I don't know where they're from. I have no idea what was there. I wasn't there when whatever happened. And so what we want to do is we want to go, well, I know how, I know how this goes. You're just wrong. You shouldn't be offended by this. No, humility says, I don't know everything. And if I'm really going to solve this, I need to take the time to go and actually find out and not presume that I actually know it. I really went off where I was at now, so I don't know how I'm going to get back. The second thing is this. There's nothing more counter-gospel or counter God's story than racial division. I mean, we've just seen it. 
And so if there is any prejudice in us, we don't get, we don't get what just God did for us to get in. He didn't, we don't get what his master story is. We're, we, we're, we're going to write our own story because I don't care about the race thing, God, if that's important to you. He says, no, I'm uni- unifying all things in me. Peter says that we are uh, living stones being built into a spiritual temple, and those st- stones need to get close to each other. You know that because they couldn't, there couldn't, when they built the temple, there couldn't be noise. That was part of the rules of making it. So they didn't, they didn't, uh, they had to make the stones perfect before they got them there. They didn't use mortar because the mortar tools would have made noise. And so they had to fit together without mortar. And so these stones had to touch one another. And if we're being living stones, we're going to have to touch one another. We're going to have to get close to people. See that? I just skipped through two pages. <laughs> so think about this. Think about in Hosea, God says, you are not my people. And then he says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And so those who are his people, the Jews, he turns his affection from them, and now he turns toward those who are not his people to make them his people. Who are your people this morning? And are you willing to turn from your people to go to those who are not your people? Because that's what God did in Christ for you. He turned away from those who he had conventionally dealt with, who he normally was in patterns of life with. And he went outside of that to a place that he had not dealt with them before to deal with them. So are your people those who happen to be of your specific ethnic background? Are your people those who are, you know, share a similar education than you? You're educated, and so my people are the educated people. Or maybe your people are the people who aren't educated. Shame on those educated people for being all highfalutin. Or maybe your people are homeschoolers. Maybe your people are public schoolers. I don't want to go to those who are not my people. I'm going to deal with those who are my people. There's a million ways we can divide up and say, these are my people. And specifically with race, we got to work harder here in Stanwood. Look around the room, guys. We got Jen. She's waving. <laughs> right? Eric's going to wink at me. We got to work at this. For us to go to those who are not my people racially means that we're going to have to go out of our way. And it's going to feel like maybe we're, uh, what's the word? I thought about it earlier today. It's going to feel like we're overcorrecting. Like we're, we don't have to go that far. I mean, that's not natural. The natural thing would be if I naturally was friends with them or I naturally was in their circles, then I would naturally have relationship. God naturally had a relationship with Israel, but he turned away from what was natural and went to what was, was unnatural, and that was those who were not his people. We're going to have to step out and go, you know what, I'm going to take some initiative to get to know people who are not like me. For, for the simple reason that that's what brings glory to God. I mean, he wants to put two stones together that have no worldly reason to be together so that he gets the praise and glory for his mercy because in him they are both part of the same temple. 
They're both part of the same household of God. So this is one of those things that we're going to have to take initiative. I mean, I would love to see more people of different color in here. There's no reason why there shouldn't be. Because not just so we can be diverse. That's not the reason. It's because God is reconciling. His purpose is to show that those two can come together. So it's a special mission of us to be more diverse than the rest of the world. For us to be more diverse than even our culture around us is. Because that's what God's heart is, is to unify all things in him. This border-crossing courage is the stuff that grand stories are made out of. God's plan from the fullness of time is not a mystery any longer. He's a reconciler. He's a reconciler of God to man, and he's a reconciler of people to people. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that he has made us ambassadors, giving us a ministry of reconciliation. This is how he authored it, for the praise of his glory in the heavens and on earth and for eternity. I'm going to close this morning with this, Revelation 7, 9 through 12, and it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and, the, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we were outside the wall. We had no hope, we had no God in this world, and yet you came, as we sang earlier, you came and you rescued us. We weren't seeking you, we didn't deserve it. There was nothing in us that deserved your mercy, and yet you freely gave it. And God, so we stand now at the foot of your cross humbled that we are no better than anybody else, but also given courage because you have given us value because while we were bad enough that you had to die, you were so loving to us. You loved us so much that you were willing to die. And so God, now we can go forth with the ministry of reconciliation that you've given us in courage and humility, and I pray that you would do that for us. That you would work in us to to crucify our pride, to crucify any prejudice that we might have, and that we would extend peace to bring all kinds of different groups together. Things that divide us, I pray God that you would abolish those and bring us together in you so that you'd receive the glory and the honor forever. In Jesus' name, amen.